As you know, we finished our study through 2 Corinthians last week, and we are beginning a new study through Paul's letter to the church of Galatia. And of course, Paul is the author as he designates himself as such with the first word of this letter, Paul. And that was customary to sort of announce who was writing the letter at the very beginning. We kind of do it differently now. We would say, dear whoever, uh, they would start out with the author uh, of the letter. And there's no dispute as to the authorship of Galatians. Even the most liberal scholars uh, believe that Paul wrote this letter. He probably wrote it from Corinth as he was ministering in Corinth for about 18 months uh, and probably around the year 50 A.D. He sent this letter off to the church of Corinth. This would have been early on in Paul's ministry and only about 15 years from the crucifixion. So this would have been very close to the time of Christ and there would have been people uh, who remembered the cross and remembered what Jesus taught and what He said and how He ministered to people. And it's amazing that only 15 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, the gospel has been perverted and distorted so much to the point where Paul felt it necessary to write this letter. In fact, it was so urgent on his heart to write this letter that he didn't even use a secretary. Normally, Paul would, you know, have somebody write the letter and he would, you know, sort of just tell them what to write. And then they would write it down and transcribe it for him. But in this letter, he wrote it himself. In fact, toward the end, we're going to see, he says just that. I wrote this letter with my own hand. And that's why it's in such big letters, because Paul's eyesight was horrible. And so, you know, he's writing like a kindergartner and these, you know, this church in Galatians, it's probably, you know, like a 15 page paper that could have been, you know, uh, put into one if he wasn't writing, you know, like my four year old daughter. But that's the urgency with which Paul wrote this letter because the situation had gone completely out of hand there in Galatia. And as you see in verse 2, it's to the churches of Galatia. This letter is unlike any of Paul's other letters in that it's not written to a specific church or a specific person. This letter is written to several churches in what was known as Galatia. Now, Galatia today is known as Turkey. In the original descendants of Galatia were the Gauls, and that's where that word Galatia comes from. They were the Gaul people or Celtic people, uh, people that descended from the British Isles, Scotland, Ireland, and France. Of course, that's very familiar to us. Uh, many of us are descendants of that very same area. And so this letter, this book to the Galatian people is very relevant to us. And Paul went to Galatia on each of his three missionary journeys. On his first journey, you remember in Acts chapter 13, they were set apart, Paul and Barnabas. They were sent out to go and to minister into 
the known world at that time and to plant churches and to bring people into the knowledge of Christ. And so they went out and they did that. In fact, they planted four churches, one in the city of Antioch, one in the city of Iconium, another in Lystra, and a number, another in Derby. And you remember that these churches were not easy to plant. You remember in Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead? And then what happened? He got up and he went back into the city and then they went to Derby and planted another church. And that just blows me away. But these churches here in Galatia were planted literally with blood, sweat, and tears. And Paul is not going to allow some false teachers to come in and distort the gospel that he worked so hard to present to them. You can imagine with all that he had gone through just to plant these churches there that he was a little perturbed when he hears that these false teachers have come in and perverted the gospel. And that was why with such urgency he writes this letter to them. Paul also went back to Galatia and these churches that he had planted on his second and third missionary journeys to encourage the believers, to raise up leadership and on those trips, he went without Barnabas. As you remember, they separated and had divided over a dispute about John Mark. But nevertheless, he went back and, and he encouraged these churches. And the purpose of this letter, this letter to the Galatians, is to bring the Christians of Galatia back to the simplicity of the gospel. That is the purpose of this letter. Because Judaizers... They were those who had been raised in the Jewish faith, but then had come to know Christ, and they had sort of combined the two together. They said, yeah, Jesus is great. We believe in Jesus. We believe in His free gift of salvation. But you've got to keep the law. You've got to eat a certain way. You've got to worship at prescribed times. You've got to keep the festivals. You've got to be circumcised. And so it was Jesus plus something else. And they had moved in upon these Gentile believers. Remember, these people are Celtic. They're Gentiles. They weren't raised with Jewish tradition. And so they had embraced the gospel. Paul had come there and he had planted churches and he had shared the gospel And like you and I, they had embraced it. They thought, man, this is great. This is a lot better than the humanistic, pagan religions that I have been taught. This is a lot better than idol worship. This makes sense. This connects me to God. This is a relationship with God. And there's freedom. And they had embraced that. But then here's these Judaizers, and they come along and they say, yeah, you know, that's, that's sort of a good start. Way to go, Paul. He, he kind of, you know, got you going on step A, got you to first base. But we want to we take you all the way around to home. And you've got to do this and this and this. And they laid out all these rules and regulations for the people of Galatia. Well, they thought, man, whatever it takes, we just want to love the Lord. We want to go to heaven. We want to have the best relationship that we can have with the Lord. And so they just bought it. 
And Paul is trying to let them know that they've bought a lie. And that's why he writes this letter. And this false teaching, we might call it legalism, has been re-wrapped countless times under different names throughout church history. And it's even prevalent today. Where people are saying, yes, Jesus is great, but there's other things you've got to do. There's other steps that you've got to take. And it's Jesus plus. And any time you add to the Gospel, you destroy the Gospel. The Gospel is simple. And these men had come in and they had perverted the simplicity of the Gospel. The Galatian people had once again allowed themselves to be shackled and put under bondage. And so the key concept in this letter is freedom. In fact, it's been called the Christian's Declaration of Independence. In fact, you're probably familiar with Martin Luther who said that Galatians was his favorite book. It was a book that set him free after being raised under the bondage of legalism his whole life. Having been a monk in the Catholic Church and having been told you've got to do this and this and this in order for God to accept you. And as he was reading the New Testament, the phrase that's quoted here in Galatians and in Romans and in Hebrews, a quote from the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. He realized, he came to the recognition that it wasn't about his works. He couldn't earn it. And so, after 1,500 years of bondage in the church, 1,500 years where the gospel had been perverted, there was a remnant. But by and large, the church had been in bondage for 1,500 years, believing that it was also by your works. And Martin Luther, of course, nailed those 95 theses to that church setting forth what we would call the Reformation. And Paul, in a sense, is trying to reform the church in Galatia. It's amazing to me that even after only 15 years, this church and other churches had completely lost sight of the simplicity of the Gospel, which would set forth really a pattern throughout church history. Where it's like our human nature just clings to this concept and this idea that it's about our works as well, even though the Bible makes it so very clear that the grace of God and our works are mutually exclusive. It's not a combination of the two. We think that it's kind of like a relay race in which Jesus ran the first leg and now He hands off the baton to us and we kind of finish it out and it doesn't work that way. Jesus already finished the race. He said, it is finished. And so freedom, that's sort of the main 
topic and thrust of this letter. In fact, the key verse is chapter 5, verse 1. It's one that would be good to memorize. Stand fast. In other words, don't be moved from this. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. The world and false teachers want to put their yoke upon us. This yoke of bondage. And I think we can do this in a couple different ways. Sort of one of two extremes. On one extreme, we can be a lot like the church there in Galatia, and we can take on the bondage of legalism. Trying to please God by our own efforts, which is an effort in futility. But we try to do it anyway. And we have that bondage. Or, we go to the other extreme, and we use God's grace as a license for sin. And that's just as much of a bondage. That's just as much of a slavery and being shackled to that old lifestyle. You see, Jesus came to not only forgive us and save us, but also to free us from our sin. And so we can get shackled and into bondage in one of two of those extremes. Legalism over here that's just all about, you know, what you can do for God or liberty to the point of using it as a license for sin and just thinking you can do whatever you want and Jesus is going to forgive you and you can live for yourself. And both of those are a bondage. A simple outline of Galatians is that in chapters 1 and 2, Paul deals with personal things. He shares his heart with them. In chapters 3 and 4, he deals with doctrinal issues. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul deals with the practical, which is always how God does things. First, he tells us what He's done for us. That is the doctrine. What He's done for us. How much He loves us. Then He says, here's what you can do for me. Here's what you need to do in response to that. See, our devotion, our duty, the do, if you will, is a response. We love Him because He first loved us. It's very easy for us to get that backwards and begin to emphasize what we can do for God rather than what He did for us. And if you're a note taker, I encourage you to jot these things down. Seven truths that I would like us to know and understand as we study this book. Seven truths that Paul makes very clear and that we're going to see spelled out for us in our study in Galatians. First of all, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
Secondly, there's only one true gospel. It's only one true gospel. We live in a culture that wants to redefine that, that wants to make it open to everybody, universalism, right? That just says, you know what? Everybody's going to heaven. It's just you've got to find the path that you want to get on. Jesus died for everybody, and that death applies to everybody, and it really doesn't matter what you believe. It's just kind of, you know, free and open, and you just are going to be accepted by God. And we've perverted the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's only one true gospel. And Paul says, if anybody comes to you with any other gospel, let him be cursed to the lowest hell. It's one of the things he says in this letter. A third thing that we learn in this book is that we are to identify with Jesus in his crucifixion. What does that mean? It means, as he says in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So we identify with the cross, which basically means that we do what Jesus said, and that is to take up our cross and follow Him. It's not very comfortable. It's not something that we enjoy doing. And these guys that, you know, take up a crusade of carrying their cross across the country. You ever heard about these guys that will actually build a cross and they'll carry it across the country and they'll hitchhike from place to place, you know? Could I uh, strap my cross to your roof? Yeah, just go ahead and take me up the road. What are you doing? I'm carrying my cross. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. In fact, I think that's a lot easier to do. It doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, but that's still easier than actually doing what Jesus told us to do, and that is to take up our cross, which is what? A symbol of death. The cross is a symbol of death. It's not a cute little thing to print on t-shirts or to wear around our neck or to have in the back of the church, although those are all fine and good, but it's a symbol of death. Death to self. That's what Jesus said. Take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself. And so there's this identification with Jesus in his crucifixion. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Another thing we learn, a fourth thing, is that the law, that is our works, our goodness, cannot bring salvation. Now again, we are told otherwise by so many. Even today, it blows me away in what used to be evangelical churches that are now buying into some of these old traditions and wanting to be shackled once again with these burdens of the law. 
Because it's in vogue. It's hip right now. To kind of go back and to be shackled once again to works righteousness. And they take James 2.24 that says, and by your works you will be justified. And they take that verse completely out of context and they isolate it away from all of the other verses that Paul says just the opposite. And they use it as a proof text that works are part of being accepted by God. In reality, that's just going back to the Tower of Babel. You remember there in Genesis chapter 10 where all those people got together and they tried to build this tower to God, which was a futile effort. But God destroyed it because it was religion. It was man's attempt to get to God. And we've rebuilt our own towers in so many different ways throughout history and in our own lives. God just says, it's garbage. You cannot climb to me. You cannot get to me. I came down to you. I reached out to you, see. And so the law, our works, our righteousness cannot bring salvation. In fact, Isaiah said that our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's repulsive to God. A fifth thing that we learn in this book is that there is a constant struggle going on between the flesh and the spirit. Paul makes that very clear in chapter 5. I call it the civil war within. This battle that is raging between the flesh and the spirit. And if you've been walking with Jesus for, let's say, oh, about two minutes, you recognize that battle, the pull. You know, I always kind of think of it like those cartoons, remember? I think it was like the big rooster, and he'd have like an angel on one shoulder that would be telling him to do the right thing, and on the other shoulder he'd have the the demon that was telling him to do the wrong thing. And I remember watching that as a kid and not really understanding even what the difference between right and wrong was. But now looking back at that, It's sort of a picture of that constant battle that's going on in our lives, this civil war. And Paul details that struggle. A sixth thing is that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. You can't do it. I can't do it for you. You can't buy it. It can't be handed down to you. You can't go pick it off of a tree. The Holy Spirit has to produce fruit in you. In Galatians 5.22, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit. And how do we produce abundant fruit? Well, Jesus tells us in John 15 that it's by abiding in Him. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Jesus said. And the seventh thing is that we have freedom and liberty in Jesus. It's a very important point to understand. 
the freedom and liberty that we have in Christ. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. And in this passage, Paul points out three things. First, he talks about his ministry. Then he talks about his message. And then he talks about his motive. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing that Paul points out, and that we're going to notice, is his ministry. He says, this is Paul, an apostle. Now an apostle is simply someone who has sent out a messenger. We might call them a missionary today. Now, Paul also meant that he held the office of an apostle. Jesus had called him into that ministry of an apostle there on the road to Damascus. You remember Paul was on his way to Syria. To do what? To fellowship with the believers there? No, to, to kill them, to beat them, to throw them into prison. But he didn't quite make it. Because there was this great light that apparently knocked him off whatever he was riding or wherever he was going, but it knocked him flat on his back. The guys that were with him were in absolute shock. They could hear audible sounds, but they didn't know what it really meant or what was being said. And Jesus spoke very clearly to Paul. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Notice he didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes the persecution of his church very personally. His bride. We are His beloved bride. Why are you persecuting me? Paul's like, I don't know, but I'm not going to do it anymore. You know, I thought I was doing the right thing. I mean, you have to, in some respects, really appreciate Paul's passion. He thought he was doing the right thing. And when he was shown differently, He responded to that. That's more than I can say for me in a lot of ways. When I'm shown things, I often stubbornly hold on to them. When Paul was shown the error of his ways, he turned from that. And Paul was also called into ministry. He said, quit kicking against the goats. The goats were those prods that they would use to herd cattle. It didn't feel real good. It's not really intelligent to kick against them. And that's what Paul was doing. He was wondering, why am I in such turmoil? Why do I not have any peace? I'm supposed to be a servant of God, and yet I have no peace. And 
Now he found it through Christ and he was called into ministry right there, a ministry to the Gentiles. And so this was his calling. He was an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He wasn't called by man. You see, we cannot be called by man. We cannot have our authority be from men. It has to be from God. Paul recognized that and he's establishing his authority here with the church of Galatia because they had been told that Paul wasn't a true apostle. And the only time that Paul really establishes his authority, you know, where he calls himself an apostle, is in those places like Corinth and Galatia where his authority had been challenged. Most of the time, Paul just calls himself what? A bond slave, a servant. It's interesting how we love to throw around titles. People love all the letters after their name, but you know the the guys in the New Testament, the original apostles, they, they weren't really big on that. They didn't want to throw their weight around. But when it was necessary, they would let people know, hey, this is what God's called me to do. I do have the right to speak. He's laying out a framework from which he can then move into the message. Because if the messenger isn't trusted, then how can the message be trusted? We talked a lot about that in our study in 2 Corinthians, but it's similar here in Galatians as well. And as we read that and we we think about the fact that Paul was an apostle, it makes me wonder, what would we write? What would you write if you were writing this letter? What's your calling? What's your ministry? Because we all have one. We all have a calling from God, a, a ministry that we've been called to. Maybe you'd have to sit here for a while and really think about it, you know. But if you don't know, you should at least be making efforts to find out. And those efforts may lead to failure. And that's what keeps us a lot of times from moving forward and and from finding out what God's called us to do is that we don't want to fail. So we do nothing. And I'll tell you this. I would rather fail trying, which I do often. I would rather fail trying than succeed at doing nothing. And so what has God called you to do? What would you write in there? So he describes his ministry, really his right to speak. Then he moves into his message. That is the truth that he speaks. Verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. His message. First he starts off with two common greetings. One Greek and one Hebrew. Grace, charis. A Greek greeting. Peace, shalom, a Hebrew greeting. He combines the two together 
which make an interesting application. That is that we cannot have the peace of God without experiencing the grace of God. Grace always comes first. Whenever Paul talks about grace and peace, it's always grace first, then peace. Because the world, and I'm sure most of us here, we were pursuing peace. That's what we wanted. We wanted to have peace with ourselves. We wanted to have peace with our family. We wanted to have peace with our wives, our husbands, our children, our co-workers, our employees. We wanted to have some peace. We wanted to see peace in the world. You know, like the bumper sticker, visualize world peace. What were the 60s all about? Peace, man. People want peace. But how do they find it? Well, in a lot of different ways. Back in the 60s, a lot of peace was found through drugs. People find it through alcohol. People find it through illicit sexual relationships. People find it or think they find it through money, through success, through power, through material things. And there is a bit of peace for a moment. Some people think they find it by contorting their bodies into weird positions and, you know, meditating on their navel and just sort of saying, you know, you know, for hours on end. Supposedly, that's like the first noise that was ever uttered in the world. Now, I don't know how we know that, if that's true. I mean, is is there like a website where you can download that? Did they record it? You know, how do we know that that's the first noise? And even if it is, what does that mean? We That we just, you know, if you, it doesn't happen a lot here probably in Prineville, but if you go over to Bend, you walk around the parks. It's interesting. You'll see people. And, you know, their legs and their feet are in places they're not supposed to be. And... You know, that they're, they're all wrapped up like a really bad game of Twister. And they're, they're saying things and they're chanting and, you know, they've got incense out and some kind of book, you know, and they're, I mean, who knows what they're doing? You just, you leave them alone, that's for sure. You know, don't want to interrupt whatever is going on here. But we want to try to find peace. We do it through a lot of different things and Paul tells us here very clearly, it's only through the grace of God that you'll find peace. And he says, who gave himself, speaking of Jesus, for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. And so the message, it's really twofold here. He very succinctly in one verse, describes the gospel. Now, volumes of books have been written. I get up here and and I blather on week after week, and Paul says it very succinctly in one sentence, in one verse, what it's all about. Who gave Himself for our sins, that He might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. 
It's twofold, though. He says what we're saved for and what we're saved from. You might call it justification and sanctification. Justification is that legal act whereby we are declared forgiven and righteous. God says you're forgiven. The penalty that was being held against you, you know, we can all understand that. You get a ticket. You have some kind of a court date that you have to go and appear before the judge. And there's this, you know, sort of looming guilt over your head until you take care of it. Until you pay it off. I heard there's some city official in Portland that has like $300,000 in parking tickets. How do you get $300,000 in parking tickets? I mean, that's just amazing to me. But this guilt, God says it's wiped away, it's cleared away. But there's also sanctification. That is where he says we've been delivered from this present evil age. That He might deliver us. So we're not only saved for something, but we're saved from something. That is that we don't have to give in any longer to the flesh and to the old man. We can reckon it to be dead each and every day. We have that liberty in Christ to do that. See, before you knew the Lord, when Jesus was not a part of your life, you had no choice but to sin. Now you have the choice to give in to the flesh or to walk in the Spirit. And we've been delivered from this present evil age. That's part of God's plan of salvation for us. It's part of the work of the cross. And this was the message that Paul brought to them. It was... The message of the cross. Which is exactly the reason that Jesus came to this earth. It says, who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself. Jesus was willing to take on human flesh. To walk on this earth for 33 years. And Jesus did a lot of things. I mean, in fact, John tells us. That if everything that Jesus ever did was to be written down, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. Jesus did amazing things. He healed people. He touched lepers. He cast demons out of people. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He taught people. He opened God's Word to people like never before. Jesus did amazing things. But have you ever thought about the fact that all those things Jesus did, the devil pretty much left him alone? Jesus was healing people. Jesus was casting demons out of people, which seems kind of counterproductive to Satan's plan. Jesus was doing all these things. And it was at the cross that the devil tried to stop Jesus and began to pervert the purpose for which Jesus came. 
It's interesting because I think that the devil is just fine with churches and with people who adopt the good teachings of Jesus, who adopt the healing ministry of Jesus, who adopt the humanitarian efforts that Jesus tells us to be about. We can be doing all those things, but if the cross is not at the very center of all of that, we have totally missed the boat. And I think the enemy says, hey, I'm fine with that. It's cool with me. Just want to be a place that, you know, teaches nice thoughts and says good things and gives people a little pep talk and helps people out and gives people money. And, hey, that's fine. But, you guys, it's the cross where we find connection with God. Man's greatest need was forgiveness, and Jesus came to bring that. That was his sole purpose. All the other stuff is important. Believe me, we emphasize all those things I just talked about. But without the cross, it all becomes worthless. The cross has to be the very center, and that's why Jesus, even though he was being tormented in his spirit, even though he was so messed up emotionally that he was sweating as it were great drops of blood. Have you done that lately? I haven't, and I worry about stuff sometimes. But I've never sweat blood. If I did, I'd be really worried. You know, there's certain areas where blood's supposed to come out, you know, like your nose once in a while. Maybe, you know, if you floss and you cut your gums. But you start having blood coming out of your ears and like your toenails and stuff. Then it's weird, and you don't like that. And when you have blood coming out of your forehead, that's, that's not cool. And I'm sure Jesus was absolutely freaked out about going to the cross. Why? Because of the pain? I don't think that had anything to do with it. Maybe a little bit. I mean, nobody likes pain. But I think it was so beyond what he was actually freaked out about, and that was having the wrath of God poured out upon him for all of mankind's sins. And I mean, it doesn't seem fair. You know, the Bible says that he who knew no sin was made to be sin with our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How many times have we said that in our life? That isn't fair. How many times does my four-year-old daughter say, that's not fair that I have to clean up that mess? Carson made that mess. Well, Jesus cleaned up our mess. And he didn't complain about it either. In fact, the Bible says that as a lamb before its shears is dumb, which just means they don't talk, they don't say a whole lot. Have you ever had sheep? You know, not the brightest creatures on the planet, but, you know, you're shaving them. They don't do much. They're just like trembling. They think they're going to die. Jesus, like a lamb before its shears is dumb, open, not his mouth. And that, that's always bothered me. I think I talked about this last week or recently, but it's, it's always bothered me. I've, you know, you want Jesus to be like the hero. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. I mean, he's at any time. I remember watching a movie about Jesus before I was a Christian. And I mean, I had been patterned 
that the hero always wins in the end. I mean, there's going to be any moment where this poor, pathetic man is going to come off this cross and he's going to do something about this. But he doesn't. And then he rises from the dead. Now, hold on a second. If he's got enough power to resurrect himself from the dead, certainly he had enough power to stop the abuse and the violence and the crucifixion that he endured. And that's the whole point. He took it willingly. From the very foundation of the earth, it was planned that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. Who gave Himself for our sins. Only He could do that. And He did it. And we have to keep the cross at the very forefront of our churches corporately and our lives personally, you guys. Paul said, I knew nothing among you to the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Simply what we need to be about. And then very quickly, Paul talks about his motive in verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. His motive was not to glorify himself. His motive was not to make a name for himself. His motive was not to write books or have a successful ministry, have a mega church. That wasn't his motive. None of those things, again, are wrong. But that was not what propelled Paul. What propelled Paul was to glorify God. What propels us, you guys? What gets us out of bed in the morning? What drives you? What's your passion? It ought to be Jesus and to bring glory to Him. See, we were raised that this world revolves around us. It's the way we were raised. It kind of comes naturally to us as well. My children just assume that that's true. And we have to beat that out of them. It's basically your job as a parent to beat the notion out of your child that the world revolves around them. And at 18, hopefully they've got that figured out. And if they don't, they'll probably end up in prison. The fact is, is that we have to come to the understanding that the world revolves around God. He's the sinner. He's the crux. He's what it's all about. We have to come to that understanding. And Paul had that understanding. Our chief end is to glorify God. Somebody smart said that a long time ago. Our chief end is to glorify God. That's what we're here for, you guys. And we're going to be doing a lot of it in heaven. We're glorifying God for all eternity. Why? Because He's some narcissistic, self-centered being? No. Because He's worthy of it. He's perfect. He's holy. And so by His very nature, He demands glory. It's who He is. It's just natural to give it to Him. And so that was Paul's motive to glorify God. What's your motive for life? What's driving you and pushing you forward? Well, you guys, we're going to celebrate communion. And... Communion is a time to remember Jesus Christ and Him crucified, what we talked about this morning. It's a time where we do a little introspection.
where we ask God to search our hearts. Where we confess sin. Where we praise Him and thank Him for what He did for us. And we remember His death and what He gave. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to sing a couple worship songs. And as we do that, you guys, come forward when you're ready. Grab a cup. Grab a cracker. Return to your seat. And then we'll partake together. So why don't we stand? Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word. God, what an amazing book that You've given to us. The Bible. And Lord, may we know it. May we cling to it. May Your Word dwell richly in our hearts. May we apply it. Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades but Your Word endures forever. And we thank You for that, that there's at least something in this life that's not changing. And even though the world is on full assault to change Your Word, God, we know that it never changes. It's always the same. And we can rely on it. We can stand on it. And we do that this morning. Lord, as we come before Your table, we're so thankful, God, for the cross. We praise You this morning, God. We give You glory. Dwell here in our midst, God. Come and minister to our hearts. Make Your presence known. Lord, fall amongst us, upon us, God. We want to realize Your presence in this place. Love has brought here again kneeling at your cross
1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Jesus, we thank You that You stepped out of eternity and You took on humanity. And that You willingly gave Yourself to be arrested, mocked, beaten, spit upon, whipped, and ultimately crucified. Your body was broken for our sin. And we We thank You that Your brokenness brings wholeness to us. That Your death brings life. That Your sacrifice gave us acceptance in God's sight. We thank You for Your broken body. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Let's partake together. Jesus, we thank You for Your blood that was shed for our sin. As Your Word tells us that without the shedding of Your blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we do want to proclaim Your death until You come. We want to keep the cross at the very forefront of our lives. And Lord, as we leave this place today, God, it's our desire to take up our cross and to follow You. To die to ourselves to live in holiness and in victory because You've delivered us from this present evil age. Jesus, we ask that You'd fill us with Your Holy Spirit. God, we want to receive Your touch. Jesus, we want to connect with You and to know You more intimately and deeply and passionately than we ever have before. God, fill us today afresh and anew. Do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Guys, why don't we stand together and close with a song. If uh, you need prayer, uh, we'll be available to pray uh, with you. Mark Roden and myself and others will be up here to pray with you if you would like prayer. I encourage you, you know, if you have a sickness or something going on in your life, you know, use this opportunity to to have others uh, pray with you. Or if you have any questions or anything about what we talked about today, we'd be more than happy to 
to share with you as well. Keeper of the stars Lord of talent
Lord, thank you for this time. We just give you praise and thanksgiving. And Lord, may you be glorified in our lives. We just commit this upcoming week to you, God. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Lord bless you guys. It's great to see you. And if you need prayer, we'll be available uh, for you up here. Love you guys. Have a great week. God.